Do keep that passage open. And uh, before I begin to speak, let's bow our heads and pray that the Lord would help us as we listen to his word. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Lord, indeed you are our God and we are your people. You have gathered us here this evening to hear your words. And Lord, we know by nature our hearts flee from your words. They are hardened against it. We choose to harden them in our sin. Lord, it is only through your grace and mercy that those hearts can be unhardened. Would you give us soft hearts, we pray. Would you give us ears to hear the warnings that are here. And would you give us eyes to see the wonderful grace and wonderful benefits that there are in Christ. These are not things we can do ourselves. This is not something that my words can achieve on their own, Lord. Not us, but Christ in us. Bless us as we listen and as I speak. Amen. Well, since uh, Easter, we've been... We've picked up our series in 1 Corinthians. We started several months ago, had a bit of a break over Easter, and we resumed at the start of chapter 8 a few weeks ago. Um, And chapter 10 really is just one long continuation of a theme and ideas that the Apostle's been working out. It's been a tricky few passages, uh, those of us who've been here the last few weeks. If you've just joined us this week, um, you come with a lot, of, a lot of ground that's been covered in the past couple of weeks. So I'll try and recap that. If we're going to know what's going on in chapter 10, we kind of need to know where we've come since the start of chapter 8. Um, the underlying issue Paul's been working through is how should Christians use their freedom? There are lots of things in the Christian life that we are free to do. Uh, things we're free to enjoy, things that God hasn't forbidden us to do, and which we even have a right to do and to enjoy. But the Apostle's been telling the Corinthians that just because that's the case doesn't mean you should always take advantage of those rights, doesn't mean you should always do such things, because they may not be helpful for your fellow believers, uh, may not serve and love them to do all the things that you are allowed to do. Specifically, he's been addressing this question the Corinthians asked him of, is it okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol? Not an everyday issue in 21st century Chesington. That's the question they asked, and it's the question that set the ball rolling on this theme. And Paul's answer to that, if you remember back in chapter 8, was a yes, but yes, you're free to eat food sacrificed to an idol. You've got a right to do that, because an idol isn't anything. It's just a lump of wood or stone. Why would it be a problem to eat food offered to one? It's the same as food that has been offered to no one. So yes, you're free to do that, but Paul says that it may not be loving and serving to uh, Christians who used to worship those idols to do that. He urges us not to focus on what we have a right to do, but on what is loving to do. And he elaborates on that in chapter 9. He points to all the ways that he's given up his rights to love and serve others, the ways that he has put his freedom down in order to serve people. And he ends chapter 9, if you remember, with some warnings that if you don't do that, if you don't set aside your freedom for the sake of others, you run the risk of not winning the prize at the end of the Christian life. So he's in a kind of phase of warning, Paul, as he gets to the end of chapter 9, and it carries on into chapter 10, and he's addressing a new issue about freedom. He is concerned about when the Christian 
thinks that their freedom takes them too far. When it takes us beyond things that are debatable, things that maybe you will do, maybe you won't do in the Christian life, to when you start using your freedom to excuse things that the Lord has explicitly forbidden Christians to do. Paul's concern is that the Corinthian freedom has run amok to the extent that they're now doing things the Lord has explicitly forbidden. He's been addressing the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols, but in chapter 10, his concern is with actual idolatry itself, the act of worshipping idols. And the warnings he gives, they are severe. They're ultimate. They're not to be taken lightly. And they should challenge anyone of us here who would call ourselves a Christian. His real warning is, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So there are warnings to listen to. But they're not burdensome warnings. They're not burdensome commands that should leave us feeling uh, laden with guilt at the end of this evening. Every time Paul gives us a warning, he also points us to something glorious and wonderful about Christ that is going to help us to obey that warning. So we shouldn't go away this evening burdened by the things Paul warns us about. We should go away warned, possibly having repented, but reminded of God's help for us. So let's look at the warnings that Paul gives when it comes to idolatry. Verses 1 to 13, he warns us against presumption. Now if we peek ahead a little bit in the passage, Paul's concerned that the Corinthians are participating in the actual acts of idol worship. Uh, In verse 20, in the sacrifices of pagans, where in the temple things are offered to these idols in worship. It's beyond the issue of eating food that was sacrificed to them but has now been sold down the market. It's beyond the issue of something he mentions in chapter 8 of eating in an idol's temple. Matt explained a couple of weeks ago that in the temples all sorts of occasions and meals would happen, you know, kind of birthdays, christenings, whatever, and you would just go and eat there. But they weren't necessarily worship meals. Christian could go to those, they might not choose to, might not be helpful to others. But this is beyond that, that Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about the actual sacrifices, the act of that being given to the idols. It involves speaking words of worship and praying to them, offering the food and eating of it in that context. And the thing that has led to the Corinthians excusing that, excusing that practice is presumption. They've been down a slippery slope thinking that because they say they're Christians, because they've had spiritual experiences, it's okay for them to be in that temple. Because they're still Christians, of course. But to demonstrate how seriously God takes that, Paul reminds us of how God dealt with Israel in the wilderness when they thought that their security meant that they could mix in idol worship with worshipping the Lord. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. Paul lists some of the great uh, spiritual benefits and experiences that Israel had in the wilderness. And as he says them, we should see how they're similar to the things that we've experienced as as Christians. So like us, Israel had a baptism. Um, They all uh, were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that's Israel's escape from Egypt, isn't it? They went through the Red Sea. Uh, The clouds that the angel of the Lord um, appeared in protected them from Pharaoh's armies behind them. And after they passed through the sea, they came to Mount Sinai. They received the law through Moses. And Paul kind of calls that whole thing, they were baptized into Moses. They had their baptism, just like us as Christians. We've been baptized into Christ, not into Moses. And like us, Israel, they had a sort of Lord's Supper as well. After they crossed the Red Sea, God gave them manna to eat. And he provided them with water from the rock that Moses struck. 
Yet, Paul tells us, they all ate the same spiritual food as that happened and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that accompanied them. So they didn't just get physical nourishment in the desert, the Israelites, they received spiritual nourishments. And the physical rock that Moses struck, it stayed put, but God, the true rock, Paul says, accompanied them and, and fed them and, drank, and gave them drink spiritually time and time again as he showed his mercy to them in the wilderness. And Paul says, verse 4, that rock that accompanied them, that rock was Christ. Now, that might seem a confusing statement. How could the rock they drank from be Christ? It's before Christ had come in the flesh. Um, and even though we know Christ existed eternally as God's son, even before he came in the flesh, the Israelites didn't have as clear an understanding of that as we do now. So how can he say the rock was Christ? Well, we, that's a rabbit trail that we could go down at some length, but how else is someone going to be spiritually nourished except through Christ? It's the only way God ever gives life is through his son, because he is the life. The only way he ever shows himself is through his son. It was in a cloudy, a less clear way in the Old Testament, but ultimately he gives life through his son. The point is that Israel enjoyed, in some sense, the same spiritual benefits that we enjoy. They ate and drank spiritually of Christ. They Um, were baptized, just as we've been baptized. God provided food and drink for them as he provides food and drink for us. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. They had all these benefits, and yet God was not pleased with them because presumption plagued Israel in the desert, presuming that because they'd come through the Red Sea, because God had provided for them before, they could do what they liked and their spiritual state wouldn't be questioned. But they were judged. They may have known less clearly than us about the person and work of Christ, but they were nourished on him just like we are as Christians. And so the same danger exists for us as existed for Israel. Paul says, verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples, verse 11, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So part of the reason we have story after story of Israel rebelling and being judged in the Old Testament is to warn us now who live in the New Testament age. Verse 7 to 10, I won't go into these in detail, but Paul gives these four examples of times when Israel uh, rebelled, grumbled, worshipped idols, and God judged them. And those stories should teach us now. You might think, well, that's, that's how God acted in the Old Testament, though. He was more judgmental now. He was a bit quicker to lose his temper back then, but he doesn't act that way now that Christ has come. But that's Paul's point. They ate and drank of Christ, just like we did. God is the same now as he was then. He doesn't intervene with his judgment in time and space in quite the same way, but he takes sin as seriously, and he'll judge it in an even worse way, in an even more dreadful way, when Christ comes back. So Paul's warning comes to verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We are all in danger of presumption, thinking that we stand firm because we've been baptized, because we've sat at the Lord's table, because we're church members, because we've had great spiritual highs in our life. But Christ can have been spiritually at work in your life And yet if you end up worshipping an idol, it will be revealed that he was only ever knocking at the door of your heart, but you never let him in. 
that he was giving himself to you as spiritual food and spiritual drink, but your mouth was closed. Now, that's not to say that you can have been born again, united to Christ, received the Holy Spirit, and then lose that. That is impossible. But if you're living outwardly as a Christian, you're in church week in, week out, or when you decide to come, you're drinking of Christ, eating of Christ, participating in him. He's here. He's speaking to you every time the word is opened, every time that you um, eat the bread and drink the wine at the Lord's table. Christ is working on you. But if you end up as an idolater, then all of that eating and drinking and listening and participating... All it's done is just harden your heart rather than soften it. Now, the danger of presumption, it can weigh heavily on you. You can begin immediately to question yourself. You know, what hope is there for me if I'm living in fear constantly of slipping into an idol worship and, and being proved that I don't really follow Christ? And again, I said with every warning, Paul tells us something that's going to help us to obey that warning. And here it's the power of Christ. In the face of temptation, Paul reminds us of the power of Christ. The thing that keeps the Bible from just being a load of warnings and a load of morality tales is the fact that when God does give us a warning and a command, in his grace and his faithfulness, he gives us what we need to be able to obey that. It doesn't come from us. Not I, but Christ in me, as we've said. So look at verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Paul warns us against sin, but he assures us that the Lord is present and willing to aid us in resisting sin if we will take the way out that he gives us. If if you know that you have been resting on presumption in your life, claiming to follow Christ but really showing no signs of it, then you can cry out to God at any time. Because he is faithful and he will rescue you from your idols. It's never too late to do that. You might think you're too far gone, but Paul says, no temptation's overtaken you except what's common to man. You may think that your temptation, if you really understood, you'd understand why, you know, I don't come to church, why I'm not following Christ, but nothing's overtaken you that God hasn't seen before. He knows how to help you out of it if you will cry out to him. Your temptations are no more justifiable than anyone else's. God's faithful. Christ is faithful. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold you fast. The rock's going to follow you through the wilderness if you'll just drink of it. So Paul warns us against presumption. Tells us the Lord will provide for us um, to resist that. Now let's get specifically into the idolatry that Paul is concerned about. Let's move into verses 14 to 22. He's warned about presumption. Now he warns us about idolatry. Um, to see specifically what he's concerned about, just flick down to verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So Paul has said, isn't he, food sacrificed to idols is permissible. You're free to eat of it. But here, he says, the act of sacrifice, the act of sacrificing that food is a forbidden idolatry because though the idol is nothing, behind the idol is a real demon deceiving idol worshippers into believing in that demon and worshipping it. 
Demons are another rabbit trail we could go down here. But in short, they exist. Christians believe that they exist. Sometimes they um, work on people by making them very scared of them, people who very much believe that demons exist. In our context, they like to convince us that they don't exist so that they can carry on working as much as they please and never be found out. Partaking in idol worship, Paul says, is partaking of a very real demon. To make his point, he says, consider Israel again, um, those who eat of the altar. So when you make certain offerings in the Old Testament, you may have eaten part of what you offered. The priest would eat lots of parts of what was offered in sacrifice. And Paul says that made you a participant in the altar. You threw your lot in with God as you ate of the same meal as him around the altar, like the altar's a table. And the same is true of when you sacrifice to an idol. You participate in the demon who's behind that idol. And to hammer home how unthinkable it is that a Christian would sit at the table and drink the cup of a demon, Paul reminds us that as Christians, we sit at the table and drink the cup of the Lord. That's the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Communion, which we um, remember and observe together in bread and wine around the table. That's interesting, and that's the basis of Paul's argument against worshipping idols. It's not where I would naturally go to to tell someone they shouldn't worship an idol. I wouldn't say, think of the Lord's table. I'd think of something else. Why does Paul go there? Well, the Lord's table, it's, it's the chief symbol of our unity and loyalty to Christ, and it displays it to others, like sitting down to dinner with someone. Um, so it's the perfect thing for Paul to point to to tell us we shouldn't throw our lot in with demons, to be united to them, apparently loyal to them. And the nature of the Lord's table for Paul makes partaking in idol worship unthinkable. Look at verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And what does he mean by that? Participation in the blood of Christ. Participation in the body of Christ. We could spend a lot of time on that. He, um, he does not mean, as many would say from this verse, the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation, that the uh, wine physically becomes the blood of Christ, that the bread physically becomes the body of Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the same thing he said in verse 4 about, uh, about what came from the rock, the manna was a spiritual food as well as being a physical food, and the water was a spiritual drink as well as being a physical drink. No one thinks that the rock became the body of Christ. No one thinks the water became the blood of Christ. So he's not saying that about the bread. Um, To eat and drink at the Lord's table is to be spiritually nourished by Christ. It's not just to sit and remember that Jesus died, though it is that, but it's where our faith is strengthened, where we're nourished, where we really commune with Christ. We experience his presence there. That's one of the things that makes participating with demons so unthinkable. Paul points something else out about the Lord's table. Verse 17, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So as well as being about our union with Christ, the Lord's table is about our union with one another. There's one loaf at the Lord's table, which should remind us that we are one body. As you pass the bread round and um, all these strange people who you go to church with have their grabby fingers all over it and, and lots of it is gone and picked apart by the time you get there, that should remind you as you see it that you're one with all the people who've had their hands on that bread, whether you like it or not. And that's the basis for what Paul then says in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons... 
You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you sit at the Lord's table, you spiritually participate with Christ and you participate with all the Christians who you're sharing that loaf with. If you engage in the explicit worship of an idol, you're truly spiritually participating in that demon. And Paul says you can't do both. God is a jealous God. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy, he asks? Are we stronger than he? Can we go toe-to-toe with God and think that we can worship an idol on a Saturday and sit at the Lord's table on a Sunday? Now, it's well and good to hopefully try and understand that, but what does this mean for us? If you tried to thrash out 1 Corinthians 8 in your life group, you might have had some tense, difficult discussions. What does this mean? How do we apply this now? How do we apply this now? I imagine you weren't recently invited to a pagan sacrifice by a close friend of yours. Paul's concern is about how we as Christians use our freedom and where that um, is too permissive, where we cross a line from what is debatable to what the Lord has clearly forbidden. I think there are two elements to that. He's worried that we will be excessive in our freedom and what what we permit ourselves to do. And he's worried that we will formally participate in the worship of an idol. I think of the first one, an excess of freedom that is idolatry. What might that look like? Let's think of an example that um, Matt raised when he did 1 Corinthians 8 a couple of weeks ago. Think of alcohol. Christians are free to drink. God made wine to gladden our hearts, the Bible says. So we are free to drink. But we may choose not to drink for the sake of others who are not helped um, if we drink alcohol around them. Um, But if your knowledge that you are free to drink as a Christian leads you to a habit of drunkenness, maybe not every day, maybe not every weekend, even just at special occasions, but if you can be reliably drunk at those things, then you've strayed into an idolatry. Your freedom has led you into something the scriptures explicitly forbid. You thought you were standing firm. Be careful that you don't fall. Maybe another example. Christians, we're, we're free to decide how we use our homes, um, who lives there, whether we take someone else in, who we let through the door and across the threshold. But if your knowledge that you're free to use your home as you wish um, means that you never invite your neighbors who don't know Christ around or your church family who um, you should love and build up, you'd never invite them around, then it may be that you've strayed into the idolatry of your comfort because you don't want that interrupted by people being in your home. You may think you're standing firm, but be careful that you don't fall by excusing things again and again until the point that you are clearly worshipping an idol. Excessive freedom is a surefire route to idolatry. But what about Paul's other concern? Um, When idolatry is a formal participation in a sacrifice, in an act of worship to an idol. Um, It certainly means we have to be very careful, as the Corinthians had to, with our interactions with people of other faiths. Um, Most of our family and friends are probably fairly secular, uh, maybe nominally Christian, but many of us may well have, for example, friends and colleagues uh, close to us who are Muslims, for example. A Christian cannot share in prayer with someone of another faith or entertain the idea that you worship the same God in different ways. What has Paul said about false gods? Behind each one is an idol. 
It's Ramadan at the minute. You might be invited to participate in the breaking of the fast by a Muslim friend or colleague because they, they love you and they want you there and they enjoy your presence. That's a great thing. But the breaking of the fast in Ramadan, the iftar, is a formal ceremonial meal as part of the holy month of Ramadan. It's something done in worship and uh, offered up to Allah. Can a Christian participate in that and sit at that table? That may seem small things, but they're formal things. And formal things are important. Maybe more common is, um, if like me, you're from a Roman Catholic family, and you're going to be invited to attend Roman Catholic worship for different things. Um, christenings, weddings, funerals, whatever it may be. Um, and that's odd to navigate. It's still broadly Christian, obviously. But if we understand what happens in the Catholic worship service rightly, idolatry happens because people pray to Mary, who is just a mere human. Pray to the other saints, who are just mere humans, and venerate their images. Um, and when they take the Mass, the bread and the wine are worshipped in the act of the Catholic Mass. So I've struggled to navigate that with my family. I've just found that the best thing is, is silence during that service. It certainly means I, I can't go and participate in the Mass with them because the bread and the wine are being worshipped as that happens. It would make my life easier if I did that with my Catholic family. But formal is important. People will see that, will remember that. And behind that, Paul said, behind any idolatry is a demon. Now, a lot of us might be thinking, well, thankfully, I don't really know anyone who's that religious. Um, don't, I'm not that close to people of other faiths. No um, worship services I'm going to be invited to any time soon. Does that let you off the hook? Well, we may not have as many religious idols around us as Corinth did, but our culture has its idols. As I said, demons are very happy for their work to be unseen. To not be thought of as demonic. But our culture worships idols. And there is always going to be pressure for us to formally affirm and formally participate in our culture's idols. What might be one? As I've thought about this, thought what might actually come up for us in day-to-day life, things we should think ahead for. Again and again, I kept coming back to our culture's idol of sexual freedom and sexual identity. It's one of the most worshipped things among our friends, our family, our colleagues. To question whether someone's uh, expression of their sexual identity is right or wrong is just unacceptable in our world, isn't it? And that puts pressure on Christians who believe that the only context for romantic and sexual love is a marriage between a man and a woman. puts pressure on us to... Um, to affirm otherwise, to participate in things that are going to praise and affirm that. Um, So have you thought through what you'll say or what you'll do when you're told to wear the rainbow lanyard? Or if you're invited maybe to a gay wedding? A wedding is a formal event. Um, Attendance at something like that by its very nature is a celebration. It's an affirmation of what's taking place, of what's at the center of that. You're a participant in what is going on. You'll celebrate afterwards, sit at the table and drink the cup, celebrating what has happened. It might be an irreligious affair, but the idol of sexual identity is being worshipped in that thing. I don't say that lightly. I have a a close, lifelong friend who um, is... Uh, polyamorous, so has numerous committed partners, and she is getting married at some point in the near future. And I've had to think, what am I going to say when I get invited to that wedding? 
And I'm going to have to say no, because how can I go to something that affirms a lifestyle that I know the Lord says is wrong? Now, I may think I want to show the love of Christ to them, surely. I don't want to lose a hearing for the gospel in the future with that person. I love them. And even if I did go, you know, the Lord knows my heart. But don't you think the Corinthian Christians really loved their idol-worshipping friends and family and would have thought the same? I can, I'll carry on going to the idol sacrifices because I'll gain a hearing for Christ in the future. But regardless of our best intentions and our love for the people that we know who worship idols, at those formal things, behind them is a demon drawing people, deceiving them into worshipping that idol. Now, how can we be motivated to obey a command like that? Well, Paul reminds us that we participate in Christ. This is the thing that will empower us to obey this command when it's hard. We participate in Christ, he tells us. We share the cup of thanksgiving, he calls the cup of the Lord's table. Why call it that? Because when we drink it, we give thanks for what Christ has done. That he would love us enough to shed his blood for us and to die for us, to have his body broken. And if I am truly thankful for that, it will crowd out any idol. It will eclipse any formal participation that I'm pressured to take part in. It will be costly to refuse to go to the idol feast. It was costly for people in Corinth. Yet, with that great cost, I know I participate in something greater. I participate in Christ. I participate in the one loaf with you. That is much greater than anything else we participate at a demon's table. And again, the one loaf is a motivation. You participate in other Christians. That should keep you from going and sitting at an idle table. You share one loaf with you know, former Muslim Christians who will never see their family again because they follow Christ. You share one loaf with the Protestant reformers who were willing to die rather than participate in the Roman mass. You share one loaf with the growing number of Christians who by the week are losing business and reputation because they won't affirm homosexual behavior. So if you were to go and sit and formally participate in any of those things, you sell your brothers and sisters short by sitting at someone else's table. Enjoy instead the participation in the one loaf with the body of Christ around the world and with Christ himself. We've been warned against presumption. Uh, We've been warned against idolatry. And the last part of this passage from verse 23 to the end Paul warns uh, us about our witness to the world around us. So he's talked about things we are forbidden from. Now he goes back in the last bit of the passage to um, the grey areas again, the matters of of wisdom and freedom. Um, The Corinthian attitude in verse 23 is, uh, I have the right to do anything. It's a selfish attitude. If I'm not explicitly forbidden from doing something, if it's not sinful, then I'll go ahead and I'll do it. Um, But that shouldn't be the thing that governs us as Christians. It shouldn't be, I have the right to do it. We should be governed instead by whether it's beneficial, verse 23, or whether it is constructive to others. We should be asking, is what I do going to be helpful to the Christians around me? And then I think Paul's concern here is, is what I do going to be helpful to the non-Christians who are around me? Now, it doesn't mean that we kick up a fuss about the morality of every little thing that we do when we are around people who, who aren't Christians. Now, Paul imagines this example of being served food in an unbeliever's home and says that uh, Corinthian Christians, they shouldn't go out of their way to, to ask questions about that or be that bothered about that. In verse 25, 
eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. So in our interactions with um, those who are not Christians, if you want to go along, go. Enjoy it. Enjoy life with them. Don't um, quibble too much um, unless there are things that are clearly disobedience. Um, You might participate in some things that some of your brothers and sisters might choose not to, having a drink, maybe watching certain things on TV, but if it's a private affair, if it's in their own home, then don't worry um, about those uh, brothers and sisters. I think that's what the second half of verse 29 and 30 are saying. Um, For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. It's right to lay your freedom down if it will be unhelpful to other Christians around you. But if you're in a context where it won't cause them to stumble, then it's fine to, to enjoy those things. But then Paul raises another but, verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, who is the anyone? Who is the one who pipes up and says, that's been sacrificed to an idol? It's not entirely clear. It's possible that it is a fellow Christian um, who is scandalized by eating food sacrificed to an idol. Sounds like what Paul's already talked about. You know, they, they don't like the eating of idle food, so they pipe up and object to it. But it's probably more likely this is a non-Christian who's speaking up because they're confused by the Christian's actions. In the context is a meal at an unbeliever's house attended by Christians who want to go. So it would be odd if there were also this person there who would be really uncomfortable in that environment in the first place. So I think it's a non-Christian who doesn't expect the Christian to act in that way, he doesn't expect them to eat the idle food. And pipes up and says, but that's, that's idle food. So perhaps Paul's concern is that by eating the idle meat, though they're free to do it, the Christian will confuse the non-Christian watching them. You know, they'll give them the impression that idle food is permissible to eat and therefore maybe idolatry itself isn't that big a deal if the Christians eat the idle food as well. I find that difficult to get my head around. You know, I would, I would be there and I'd be wanting to show them I'm free in Christ, so I'm going to eat all the idle food that I want. So I don't, you know, I don't want them to think I'm under the law and that I'm all about avoiding things. Um, I want them to just see that I can enjoy these things, that I'm just like them. And that's a crucial few words, I think, just like them. Um, Christians, we should try not to seem weird to the non-Christians in our life, but sometimes you just have to seem weird. You have to stick out like a sore thumb because that is going to be your witness to those people. Imagine you know, an example I try to apply this to. Someone invites you out to something on a Sunday or a Tuesday. You don't want to be at church or at life group, but you think oh, it's worth missing church on the Lord's Day um, for the evangelism opportunities that that's going to bring. And you get to whatever it is and someone says, oh, shouldn't you be at church? What do they take away from that? Maybe the church isn't that big a deal. So, if even the Christians don't go to church, why would I bother? It takes wisdom and maturity to navigate this. I've struggled to apply these these last sections of warnings, but it's about how we are perceived. So ask yourself what effect your behavior has on the non-Christians in your life. Paul begins to wrap up uh, from verse 31. To do all things to the glory of God. In context, that means do it in a way that loves people and that serves people. 
and whoever they are, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Now, my main barrier to everything that um, we've read in chapters 8 through 10 is that it will take a lot of effort to think through what I do and ask, is it loving to the people around me? Obviously, I'm sinful and selfish and don't want to do that anyway, but it also just takes time and effort and thought to think, is this going to serve the people who are watching? Is this going to serve the Christians around me, the non-Christians around me? And cynically, I also wonder if I will ever grow to be considerate enough to bother to do that. I want the path of least resistance. Is it sinful? No, I'll do it. Fine. I don't want the effort of asking, but is it loving? Is it beneficial? Is it constructive? But Paul does not think that living life that way is beyond the normal Christian. His last command in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To obey this, we have the pattern of Christ. Paul tells us, love, serve others, give up your freedom for them, because that is the pattern that Christ has set for us. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He laid his life down for others. He had endless power and authority and rights, and yet put that down to serve people. We can do the same because God gives us the power to do that. We should do the same because we participate in the body and the blood of Christ. Let me pray and we'll close. Father in heaven, these are hard words, hard to understand, hard to follow. Above all, Lord, hard to obey. Would you, by your Spirit, implant these things in our hearts? Would you ensure those hearts are not hardened, but that they hear your voice and do not put you to the test? Would you show us the relevance of these things for our lives? Help us to honor you and obey you and give glory to you in all things as we love and serve those around us in the pattern of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.